1: That's com
2: slash Wondery. Hello and welcome to Baseball Barbicast, the only baseball podcast in the world with no interest of ever relocating to the city of Las Vegas. I'm Jake Mintz. That's Jordan Schusterman and we just don't like gambling enough to do that. Jordan, we have a special guest that is going to join us today for the entirety of the show. Please explain.
0: Yes. uh, Hello, everybody. It is Friday. Jake and I are in Omaha in separate hotel rooms covering the College World Series, but Major League Baseball is giving us plenty to talk about for better or for worse. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's for worse. And we wanted to bring in Chelsea Janes of The Washington Post, who joined us Back at the winter meetings for a special podcast. And Chelsea was was so great. She crushed the audition to randomly do another full podcast with us in June. And now she is here. Chelsea, good morning. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. I'm always happy to be here if you have no one else. It's a good role for me.
0: Well, you know, we're barely paying attention to Major
2: League Baseball. So we figured someone could come on the show and tell us what the heck is going on. Uh, what is going on is Rob Manford is going on. Rob Manford is kind of always going on. Like there's never a day where people, baseball fans wake up and they're not mad about Rob Manfred, but uh big body Rob had a particularly, we'll say a notable press conference yesterday in which he was able to insult the A's and the gays, uh, in the span of about 30 minutes. I just want to be, you were there in attendance. I just want to begin about the experience of doing a, a Manfred press conference, right? It's usually like the same 25 people with mics in his face. I am curious about the process of knowing that he says a lot of things that are bullshit, but also having to be there every time to like ask him these questions.
1: It's pretty wild. And yesterday in particular was a little bit different because he said so many things so fast that I couldn't really process that i almost didn't realize until after what had just happened um one of the things he does you know he he walks in he says hi to everyone very very kind of shortly and you know acknowledges all the people that he is about to kind of go back and forth with and you can tell he's got fear in his eyes when he sees certain people and uh it makes a lot of eye contact with the people he finds less threatening and you know it's it's kind of funny but um it's wild, and and yesterday in particular, I think I personally was like stunned um, into silence by some of his answers. I asked him one about what the owners thought about the A's, and that answer somehow wound its way to Oakland having not done anything to try to keep the A's. And I was—you don't even really have to ask the right question; he just sort of tends to go where he shouldn't anyway.
0: Well, I want to before we get to the, the specifics of, of yesterday's press comments. Can you help us for those unfamiliar with? why uh, the commissioner does press conferences to begin with and what the the timing and the sequence was of why he gave a press conference yesterday. Can you give a little bit of background on that?
1: Yeah, he. I think he likes to give as few as he possibly can, um, but he does sort of have to speak at the end of every owner's meetings, which I think they have three or four times a year and this week had in New York. And so the last morning of the owner's meetings, as all the owners are trickling out, he brings reporters into a conference room and tells them what they talked about or what he wants them to think they talked about. Um, so this was just another one of those pretty low key compared to the ones he would would have during the lockout and, and during some of those negotiations, but uh, always eventful somehow.
0: But I think that that's a very important point, like contextually, because not to necessarily obviously defend any of the things that's being said, but we often talk about how what is Rob Manfred's job and why is he kind of presenting ideas that are clearly just a an extension of the owners? Well, if he's literally walking out of the owners meetings, it should not surprise us that the talking points and a lot of the viewpoints being shared are quite literally probably directly from the voices of the most powerful uh, men in that room. Right. And so that is why. To your point, I, when you actually read the quotes, especially when you don't even hear them, I, it's shocking and stunning in, in some respects. But also, I'm like, yeah, duh, they just told him that 20 minutes ago. <laughs> and, so, and and so that's the part of it that I think is, is compelling. So let's, let's move forward to, to the specifics of yesterday because that's the other interesting part that you just mentioned there, which is that when you are in a press conference and you don't necessarily know how he's going to react – that means that you don't even necessarily know how to react to him and how to follow up with questions because like like you said, you couldn't have necessarily foreseen him saying these things to these degrees about these certain situations. So, Well, there's also, think, yeah. there's also a component of it like when you're
2: talking to anybody in the world and they're saying things that are totally off the rails, but they're saying it with a tone that is not off the rails and you're just kind of like nodding along like, yep, 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 that's it. Mm-hmm hmm totally yep I get it and then you like pause for second. you're like wait what the fuck like, <laughs> like I imagine that's a little bit what the experience is like
1: yeah I mean yesterday um you know you I think to to Jordan's point like that is really important Rob Manford has to speak for the owners so what he's saying in defense of John Fisher maybe he doesn't agree with you know I'm not saying Rob Manford is this principled guy who would have done everything differently but John Fisher doesn't speak, so someone has to be like, "No, we're doing what we we did our best, whatever." Um, but he just like continues to go one step further, and um, with you know, I think everyone kind of read the comment he made about the boy the boycott night, where he was like, "You know, oh, they almost had a ma- average major league crowd, like good for them, kind of thing." And it was like, "What? Like, was did I did you mean to say something that mean for no reason? You know, it was just kind of like, what are we doing?" So. Yeah, a lot of moments yesterday where I was like, am I misunderstanding something, you know, let alone trying to follow up and be like, wait, did you really just say that?
0: Well, and also with him, because he is such a, shall we say, interesting public speaker, the quotes when you read them are sometimes way worse or not as bad as you think when you watch the <laughs> yeah. clip. Like he is a great example of sometimes it's it's worse or not. Anyway. I want to stick on Oakland first. Let's let stick one topic at a time here because something you just mentioned there, John Fisher doesn't speak. This is kind of an existential baseball issue that we have hit on a bunch um, since we've been doing these podcasts, which I still am, am constantly grappling with, which is we want the people in charge who are making these decisions that impact you know millions of fans all the time to be accountable and to at least say why they're doing things. But then we also have owners that say stuff and we're like, oh, my God, why are you saying anything ever? So where do you fall on that spectrum and particularly how it relates to John Fisher?
1: No, I I often am able to not empathize, but understand the thought processes of organizations who are like, I'm not going to let my guy talk. Like, why do the Reds let anyone talk? I don't know. You know, it makes sense to me not to. Uh, The damage that they can do is far greater than it is if they stay quiet. I think the problem is... Rob Manfred is sort of that way too. You don't have a spokesperson that's going to deflect from these problems and that's just he's not good at. It. You know, it's not necessarily like something a personal attack on Rob Manfred to say like you're not really a great public messenger for these guys and uh so I think with that if you had someone who was a little more believable and empathetic in that role maybe it wouldn't feel as as painful to not hear the owners talk but he kind of leaves it out there where it's like is this really how you feel or you know you 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 kind of almost can't believe what Manfred's saying so yeah, it's I, it's a problem. I get why teams don't do it. I think in this situation, it's it's cowardly and for Fisher not to explain himself. And I think everyone can kind of draw their own conclusions from that. If he's willing to let yeah. them do that, then you know we know who he is.
2: At least for Bud Selig, like he was he was a cutie pie. And I mean, you just wanted to like pinch his little <laughs> cheeks. You know, it was like a softer face to the experience, right? I I I like yeah. Bud Selig was just so grandpa energy right? That that it was like a, a nice face atop the horrible <laughs> thing going on, that, that it was more digestible. Go ahead, ron
0: Well, and the thing that I know people, again, people who have covered the game far longer than the three of us um, always talk about Bud Selig is also that Bud Selig loved baseball a lot. <laughs> and he was a fan through and through. And like that clearly at least not that he was by any means a perfect commissioner, but in the way that he communicated, and at least in the motivations, and the way that he probably interacted with the owners, there was almost a more genuine uh, motivation, seemed to be rooted in his involvement in the game, which is a lot harder to say about our current commissioner. Now, let's does, yeah, go ahead.
2: Let, no, I want to ask this point blank, and then we can specifically get to the A's. Chelsea James, does Rob Manfred love ball?
1: I don't think he does, you know, I don't think it, yeah, I don't think he does. And I think it shows and that's probably why he's not super well suited to this role. You know,
2: he's not doing stat head searches.
1: (laughs) No, no, he's not. And he's not a great, he should be, though. he should be, he's good at defending the owners and what they want. And I think that is why he has his job.
0: Um so the A's specific comments there's there's plenty to get to and you know I know uh you wrote a, a solid recap for the Washington Post and you can see those quotes everywhere on on Twitter yesterday but it seemed to be that the two main one of, I would say the two things that jumped out to me one is the one you just mentioned which is his reaction to the to the reverse boycott being like oh wow congrats you got 28,000 people like all the other major league teams do all the time okay great like I mean if that's literally a joke as i just referred to if that is the kind of you know flippant joke or dismissal that is being shared in the owner's rooms that is very concerning okay (laughs) first and foremost um the second thing is regarding the actual oak the actual negotiations with the city of oakland which people from the oakland government including the mayor's office have already come out and be like dude we were we were trying we were actively making efforts and as the mayor said on the day that this all you know blew up a month and a half ago or so we were in the middle of negotiations when they turned around and announced they were going to Las Vegas. and so how was that uh, a, or what specifically was kind of communicated by by the commissioner and how was that received in the room and then beyond.
1: you know, he he was very clear as you can see in the quotes like it was never going to happen in Oakland or they tried and and Oakland wasn't going to come through and i think people tried to ask a lot of questions about that, you know, like what what was the timeline kind of like why you Know is Vegas a better fit if the stadium is going to be smaller? You know, people try to get at him in all these different ways. And and one of the things people kept asking in, in literal multiple ways was, What concerns do you have about this move? And he wouldn't say, He's like, I don't know enough, I haven't read the package, I don't know. And it's like, Well, Dude, just, do the homework, just bro. Come, like, come up with a better answer. Yeah, just come up with a better answer. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to be like flippant, I don't encourage lying, but like, you can just say. You know, I'm really trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's see. There's just other ways to say it. And I think to your point of like, is this the kind of thing the owners are saying behind closed doors? To me, what was so jarring about yesterday is if this is the kind of thing Rob Manfred doesn't think twice about saying publicly, what does he think twice about saying publicly? You know, like what is in, you know, it's just, it's just disappointing. It's disheartening. And, but I think it's also illuminating that like, this is who he is. This is who they are. This is who the owners are. This is how they think about it. If they can say this stuff this easily, they clearly really believe it and don't worry about it. And I think that that informs you in a different
2: way. And there is an element of it to me that is refreshing in a bizarre backwards kind of end of the Watchman way, right? Where this is the truth. We very rarely hear the quiet part out loud in our society and in this game. And when Manfred comes out and says it and you're like, holy crap, I can't believe you said it, it is at least reassuring that our concerns about how the sport is stewarded are like founded in truth. They are grounded in something real, right? I want to talk about this one quote. June Lee, friend of the show, tweeted this one out. uh, And this was on like the reverse boycott. Just quote, I mean, it was great. It is great to see what is this year almost an average major league baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. So when you see this written, it comes across so bitchy, like mean girls level. Ooh, congratulations on your big game, right? Like that's how it reads. Did it come across that sarcastic and snappy in person or no?
1: Yeah. Oh, 100%. I mean, to the point, like I said, I have heard it and I was like, I must've misunderstood that. But I think one of the things about Manfred, and I don't think this lets him off the hook, but it's just true, is like, he's just like this, you know, like he got to this job by being a kind of very litigious guy who is able to make good arguments and stick with them and and act like it's obvious to everyone and should be that, that he's right. I mean, we, I was listening to the bankruptcy hearing about Sinclair a couple of weeks ago when he was testifying and like the judge was like telling him to stop talking. Like he's the same guy in every room, you know, it's not just us. Um, and I think that's just kind of like, like you said, it's a little refreshing. You're just like, okay, that's who this guy is. We don't have to wonder, you know, he's, he's going to pretend that the, the A's had a choice, but even he knows that's not true. It's like, that's who he is. So you kind of have that guy at the top. He's like the, the dictator that, that everyone kind of just works around and I just think it's almost helpful sometimes to understand how how clinical his approach to this is.
2: What's interesting about it to me, right? One of the big things on his plate is the expansion, right? Is He wants to add two more teams, but he said like a gazillion times, he's not going to do that until they remedy the A's and the Rays stadium situations. And so he wants the A's situation fixed for whatever the hell that means, right? Is he happy about this outcome where we're at now of the A's moving to Las Vegas, because it is clearly what John Fisher wanted. And to a point, Manfred has to protect and back up those wishes of the, of the owners. But is like, is Manfred happy with how everything went down? Do you think, or does he just not care? And the, um, he's just happy with the end of the story.
1: I will be interested it's hard to answer, but I will be interested to see how Oakland is treated moving forward in those expansion talks because I think that will tell us a lot about how Mancrit actually feels. You know, I I think MLB is gonna be happy to be in Vegas. I, you know, kind of informally I think that they, you know, have heard that they wanna do you know, some more events there. It's kind of a glitzy place, maybe some award shows and the you know, it's just it's just kind of like a place that they can use that they know players will come to and want to be, whatever. Um, but long term, like I am curious if Rob Manford genuinely believes baseball in Oakland is not viable, because if he does, he's probably really happy. Or if he thinks that baseball in Oakland with John Fisher as the owner of that team was never gonna happen. So let's just get rid of that and we'll start over. Um I think that will inform us More than anything I've heard so far, because it's it's all just he's just so hard to kind of to understand.
0: I think and by the way, like there's a lot of other elements to this a story right now. I know that it seems like it's pretty much passed all the bills it needs to pass in the Nevada uh, uh, state government. So now we're going to go. To the the relocation committee, whatever that looks like, I don't know how long that process is going to be. I know Bryce Harper had some interesting quotes as a as the the prince of of you know Vegas baseball, talking some doing some finding a way to to pander to Phillies fans even through through that.
2: <laughs> I talked to that's so funny. I talked to Bryson Stott also from Vegas about this like a couple months ago when it really first came out, and he was like, "I don't think it will work." He like straight up was just like, I yeah, he's like, I think it's a bad idea because the people of Vegas don't want something that isn't theirs, which is in kind of an interesting mentality. I would imagine that growing up in Vegas, like there's a lot of hate thrown at you, like fake town, whatever. And so like picking up someone else's thing is probably, you know, embarrassing. I, oh, I suppose
0: to you're saying to compared to if they had gotten an expansion team instead of a relocated team. Yeah yeah i that, that that and that makes some sense to me and and again like i i and I've said this at the early part of this process. I understand the inclination to just dunk on Vegas as a sports place, and like that's i I get it I don't really feel the need to do that like I don't feel like that is the story here at all at this point, like I really want to keep the focus on oakland but um but yeah it is it is still part of it and and they are they are we are putting those people in a in a weird situation of. You know, the way that Seattle feels about Oklahoma City, truly, right? Uh, from an NBA standpoint, like that is there is a lot of vitriol there, and the people of Oklahoma City had nothing to do with that, but that is <laughs> that is it it's all about the owners and then who moved them there in the first place. Um, I want to get to the other topic, which, Listen, here we are, June sixteenth. It was like, all right, how many other ways can Major League Baseball screw up Pride Month? Uh, this <laughs> we're only halfway through, and how can we do it? Well, good news—we got some new. We, we we managed to, you know, DF, DFA our shitty pitchers saying dumb shit, but we still uh, have to keep going with with some really inspiring and maddening stuff. So let's uh, to, let's flip the topic there. Of course, the A's story will continue, and we will continue to cover it to the best of our ability. But I did want to talk about this as well because. It feels important. And as also, as you kind of communicated on, on your timeline yesterday, Chelsea, this, it to some ways, was almost even more stunning to kind of hear uh, said out loud in some respects. So why don't you take us through about how this line of questioning kind of came up yesterday during the meeting? I'm, I'm curious about that, too, in relation to the A's. I'm, I'm curious how uh, he, he was asked about uh, Pride Night and Pride Month in MLB and then kind of how he responded to that.
1: Yeah, um, I think... Um, There had been a story in the Washington Examiner, I think, yesterday morning that MLB had kind of quietly told teams not to do Pride uniforms or whatever. I actually hadn't seen that at the time. Um, I don't know if Hannah Kaiser, who asked Manfred about the Pride nights, had seen it. But she, I think, in light of all the craziness, in Pride Month was basically like, did you guys have any conversations lately about you know, standardizing how teams handle this, you know, having everybody do it, whatever. And so that's the the question that got the answer. And the answer was, he volunteered that that story that some of us might not have seen was correct, that MLB had indeed asked, told teams, we don't think you should put pride logos on uniforms, hats, bases, whatever. And he said the reason is because he wants to protect players from potentially having to do things that are like, you know, against their personal views um, was what he said. And he said that, and we all kind of heard him. And then the press conference ended. And even in the immediate aftermath, we all were like, wait, what? Uh, and I think that's kind of the comment that's been circulating since is basically we need to protect the players from pride logos.
2: And when he says protect the players, what he, th- this is, is like um, a dynamic I'm always interested with him and with MLB is, How much are you trying to solve a problem and how much are you trying to solve a PR problem? How much are you trying to avoid something messy that you then need to deal with? And this is definitely the latter because players are not people in this scenario who need the protecting, the first thing. And who is Rob Manfred to say that he is out there to protect the interests of the players to begin with? we just did the lockout where he was going against the interests of the players. And so that particular excuse rings hollow besides all the other insane shit that he's saying in regards to this, right?
1: Yeah, it's, it's wild. I mean, you know, one of the narratives around pulling the all-star game from Atlanta was that MLB didn't want black players getting asked about this for the months leading up to the game and didn't want them having to choose until it wanted to make a decision for them and protect them from that. That makes sense to me. That is a kind of protection that makes sense. Uh, This is not, I think what he means and to your point is like, we need to avoid the PR problem that would emerge if a bunch of dudes said we're not wearing these uniforms because every time it happens, people get mad. And I think the fact, you know, one of the things that kind of struck me yesterday is, you know, it's it's really easy for Rob Manfred to say something else to say, we don't really like people messing with our uniforms. And we know major league baseball is insane about that stuff. So, you know, we're just, we don't want to like, kind of have pride uniforms every year. We're just going to leave that, whatever. We can only have so many new uniforms, whatever. Stupid, but fair. But he went further and said, no, we don't do this because some players might decide it is against their beliefs to say, gay people should be welcome in Major League Baseball. And we need to protect their right to believe that. And I think and protect them from any repercussions from believing that. And to me, that's just, you basically are saying, that's more important than making people feel welcome. And, uh, you know, you're, you're saying that those are reasonable views that these players deserve to have held without being questioned about them. And I think That is a hard thing for a lot of people to hear who are genuinely in need of protection, um, who are marginalized and who look to the sport for escape and see that it will not stand up for them.
0: And also, like, what is the basic level of messaging around pride in the first place? Baseball for all, right? Baseball is for everybody, for you, for whoever in whatever, you know, community you put yourself in. This which, is which just quickly, who is baseball for. Just quickly, yeah. Jordan, that is not true. Like, I think that
2: is important no, I, I know, but- I, no, no, I know. I'm not saying that you're not saying that. I'm just saying, like, when MLB or when Pride Nights are with anything, when we're saying, like, the stadium is a place that everyone should feel comfortable, that is not the reality right now on June 16th, 2023. And, like, I just think that is a really important thing to recognize.
0: 100%. No, no, I the, the the reason I'm saying that is that that is the stated intention. That is the course. stated goal that we are trying to get to. And what these quotes are literally saying out loud is actually baseball is more for these people whose opinions we are more concerned about. Even if they are the majority and they are the ones who are as you've already talked about in recent episodes about some of the the, the discourse around these issues The people who are already in charge and the people who are already the majority, the people who are not necessarily threatened or marginalized and all these other things, right? We've already had those conversations. But that's what's so stunning about it is it is the the antithesis of what is the stated mission of everything here. And while we cannot expect every single team to have the same level of Pride Night, depending on where they – I mean, it would be nice, right? It would be cool if we had some level. I I know that I can – I'm curious where you stand on that, but also – the degree to which there should be some sort of league mandated pride night or pride month and events like that, that I, I sort of understand. I I wish there was, but I can see that more. But again, it's the way that this is being communicated and the motivations and the concerns that are being said out loud. That is what is so jarring, I think is, is the fair way to put it. Well also,
2: sorry, yeah. so when you look at it within the context of wearing other themed uniforms yeah. for like military days where that is, you know, changing the way a uniform looks in order to promote or highlight a certain group or people or community in the country. That is like, how is that okay? And no pride uniforms is okay. Right.
1: It's, it's really wild because I think one of the things that comes up again here as with the A's is like, if you're willing to say this out loud without hesitation, you you probably are even further behind on your empathy than you've communicated. You know, it just shows, and I, I think it's really hard. Like we all have to sort of like learn how to put ourselves in other people's shoes and understand why things hurt them and why things are hurtful to certain communities. Like, I'm sure you guys, I've certainly like made mistakes in that way where I was like, Oh my gosh, I didn't even know that that would be hurtful. But we've had this conversation for years now and for the commissioner of major league baseball, not to be prepared to, deliver that message differently to sort of a volunteer it. No one asked, did you say don't do pride night? You know, he just said it. Um, I think it just reveals just this level of removal of him and the people around him from, I don't know, what's, what's hurtful to these people. And it's, it's disappointing. Like you say, I'm, we all understand, like these are conservative owners, a lot of conservative players, like you don't expect major league baseball to be the front runner on LGBTQ rights. Right. But for them to admit that they are protecting the rights of their employees to say, I don't think gay people should be welcome. And I am so bothered by it that I won't wear this jersey. Uh, that is kind of rough. And it's something they could easily change and, and make a stand on. Uh, and they not only choose not to, they they tell you they're not even
2: close. And the thing that I find incredibly disheartening about this In a way, it gives Anthony Bass and the Tampa relievers a big victory and a win where they feel like worthy martyrs, like brave souls who stood up for what they believed in. And they are able to, that just reinforces that behavior within the league and will only lead to more players feeling comfortable sharing their regressive beliefs in public. And that will only create more harm for the marginalized people who don't already feel comfortable. And to me, more than Rob Manfred saying something stupid, like, again, he does that all the time. Like, that is what I find so sad about this, is that he is basically saying, you people stood up for the thing you believed in, and it worked, right? And that's just going to become a cycle now.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it gets messy when you bring in religion. And and certainly, we are able to let everyone have their religious beliefs. Um, I think what it comes down to in this conversation, as in many outside of baseball is, you know, if your beliefs hurt people, you would hope that that would lead you to reconsider. And when the employer or the or major league baseball, this massive institution says, like, that view is not okay, we're going to encourage people to feel welcome, you deal with that. That probably would make some people reconsider or at least expose them as, as what they are. Um, and the fact that they can't do that, it it just gives people the right to, you know, think they're in the right and that's hard.
0: Um, I mean, listen, there's, there's I'm sure a lot of us <laughs> coming out of that, that presser that we could have uh, dug deep on, but, uh, I think we should, take a break uh thank you for for helping recap uh that with us chelsea but chelsea's gonna stick around she's going to join us for the second half of this show which we're excited about we are going to talk some real ball as much as this uh, league makes us not want to <laughs> and so uh we will we are going to take a quick break and when we return we are going to talk about the misery in missouri this is former PJ tour winner smiley
2: kaufman host of the smiley show a serious xm podcast you want to know what i love about golf i get to talk to some really cool people i get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world and i get to share it with you every single week listen to the smiley show right now on stitcher pandora apple or wherever you get your podcasts that's smiley S M Y L
0: I E. And welcome back to Baseball Barbacast. Chelsea James of the Washington Post continues to join us. What a treat. We are now going to enjoy talking about baseball. And what better way to enjoy that than talking about the last place, St. Louis Cardinals. Um, Chelsea, uh, we're going to talk about the state of Missouri here for a little bit. The Royals are the worst team in baseball. The Cardinals are the worst team in baseball that is not supposed to be bad. Uh, and we, let's begin with the Cardinals because I saw you, uh, tweeting about them a little bit over this past week as they have continued to spiral for like the fourth different time this season in a different way. And so let's, let's just, you know, send it to you here. I I know you kind of expressed this in your tweets, but just like, where do you, to what degree are you shocked? What has surprised you? What, what is your, your, your takeaway? I don't know if you've been around the Cardinals much this season, but what do you, uh, what do you take from this just complete mess a, a almost un like completely unprecedented situation for a franchise that can roll out of bed and win ninety games.
1: Yeah, I was around them a bit during all the Wilson Contreras stuff. So at another spiral point. Um and so first of all, I think like there's a team every year, every couple of years that's supposed to be really good and falls apart. I watch the Nats do it. It's painful. It's agonizing. The vibes change and you can't get out of it. Like that's kind of what makes baseball great is there's an emotional component that you kind of can't measure. And the Cardinals are just in their heads. Like you can see it, you can feel it walking in that room. I think, you know, I still think like, I thought they would be really good. You know, I I really did. And it's sort of hard to imagine that they stay here forever, but it's also hard to imagine that after all they've been through, you know, they just kind of turned around like Nolan Arenado was there the other day, like defending the coaching staff, but kind of sounding like someone died, like, you know, they're feeling it. Um, and it's too bad. I think Ollie Marmol is a really interesting manager and a smart guy who's really kind of got a different approach than a lot of people. But who knows if he can survive this. Um, it's just one of those things where it's like hard to pinpoint fault, but somebody's going to have to take the blame. And I'm very curious to see who it will be.
2: Before we get into the why, I just want to talk about the Ollie Marmol press conference experience, which reads like an SNL bit at times where he is asked a question and he answers it with as few words as he possibly can. And there is this dumb pact, right? That we have as sports writers that in some ways I'm happy Marmol is like pushing back against where if you ask a question that sucks, the manager or the interview subject is expected to expand on that question and provide you with the quote you need for your story. Right. And so he does not play that game. Right. Right. So I think the other day he was asked like, you know, um, was it tough? How in the bottom of the tenth you had some big bats coming up, and you know they they couldn't get the job done. Is it frustrating? And Ollie Marmol goes, yes.
0: Where yes. We- and, and I've I having been in these because pre- to call him, it's different because sometimes especially at home it's more of a he's up on the podium whereas on the road I've seen this in over the past couple of years in Cincinnati he's just in his office. He's just in his office, sitting at his desk, and especially on the road, like, literally, it was me, it was Derek Gould, and it was John Denton from uh, LB.com. And it went 20 minutes, but, like, Derek just desperately trying—and Derek's the best, right? But, like, desperately trying to pull anything, and Ollie will not give. And in some points, Ollie's practically smiling and laughing. Now, he's not doing as much of that anymore now, because it's the season is getting to a point where it is no longer remotely— probably salvageable. And this was probably a month ago where it was things were bad, but it was like, we're fine. We're only five games back, but now you're the worst team in the National League and you can't really smile through any of it, even if you are giving short answers. So I agree with you. He is a fascinating manager. And I don't even know if we're ever going to find out if he's good or bad because it's kind of too far gone. Like I don't and but to your point, like who is 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 it his fault? No, there's no way it's his fault. But so then what's the problem? Because I still look at this roster I'm like, damn, that's a lot of good players. There's a lot of good players on this team. Some of them who are still playing pretty well.
2: Someone in a meeting at some point in a Zoom meeting made a presentation. I don't know this for a fact. This is conjecture. Made a presentation that was like, everyone wants pitchers who strike people out. We should get a great defense and pitchers who don't strike anybody out. And that is a market inefficiency. And that person either had enough juice or made a compelling enough argument to convince the powers that be. To do this. And then they did it. And it worked for a couple of years because they had an elite defense. And then this year in 2023, the entire thing fell off a cliff. And so, in my mind, that is the person on whom the blame should be. Either the person who came up with this idea, the person who continued to do this strategy, or John Mozieliak, the general manager who is the one pressing the final button. Like, it is such an obviously bad idea. Like, and I know it worked, but the defense has just cratered to such an extent. that Like, this is not a bad lineup. You know, they've underperformed, but they are good. Like, they're still pretty good. Like, I believe in the lineup. The defense sucks and the pitching sucks, and that's why they're here.
1: Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to watch. I, I asked Miles Michaelis about that, like, you know, the the ground balls and the shift. And he was like, you know, I think we've been really unlucky this year and all this stuff and, you know, I'm luckier than most and and the balls will bounce the other way. And it's like, well, what if, what if they don't, you know? <laughs> um, and, and I think they're all starting to like have that realization, but there's, you know, and I don't know the organization as well as I, you know, like do others. um But there's been some weirdness there the last few years with, with Mike Schilt and, you know, Jeff Albert and it just kind of the way things have shuffled, people like Maddox leave it, whatever. It just doesn't seem like a place where there's a coherence of, of mission. Um, and on a team where they're so obsessed with the Cardinals way and doing that, it's almost, you kind of wonder if maybe it's time to kind of get some new blood in there at the top and, and sort of remedy the vibe. Um, I don't know if it's John faults. fault. I often think that sometimes just change for change sake is helpful in these situations. So who knows, but it is, Things have been weird there for a bit, and I think you're right. Like, There's been some strategies settled on there that you're kind of like, do you just think you're smarter than everyone else? And I think they do, and in many cases they happen. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's it's kind of fallen apart, and they may need to kind of humble themselves a little bit here.
0: Yeah, and Moselix had so much success to where it's hard to put right. on him. But, but to your point, the timing was weird because the whispers over the last few years is that he's kind of on his way out, and it still seems that way. But instead of, you know, jumping ship like Theo before everything gets ugly, (laughs) he's he's riding it out like he's still there. And I don't know what it doesn't seem like it's likely to keep him around for much longer. That's for sure. Um, We'll see how that but but again, as with a lot of things with organizational stuff like this, as Jake's kind of alluding to, we don't totally know. There's deep seated stuff here with within the clubhouse, within just player development in general, at all levels of the minor leagues. Combined with the analytics and the and the way that they've built this roster, that is, there's a lot of things contributing. This is you cannot just point to one player, to one coach, to one move. As much as we want it, it's easy to go, oh my god, like Wilson Contreras was their one move, and that's been a disaster. And this is all that like, and they they got you know they got complacent because their division is an embarrassment. And by the way, that's still true. That is still true, and they are in They have the worst uh, record in the National League. So, um, it's it's wild. It's wild. So, let's go from them. To Kansas City. I don't know how much you've thought about this team, Chelsea, if at all, if you've seen them, if you've watched a minute of them this season, because if you haven't, I totally understand. But what has happened over the last week and a half has been, or two, two, three weeks, has basically been an unbelievable nosedive from being the clear second worst team to, in combined with the improbable A's winning streak, being the worst team in baseball for a team that I don't think was expecting to be good this year, but was at least expecting to be fun and sort of sort of cheeky, you know? All right, we got some young pieces. We have, you know, Bobby Witt Jr. and Vinny Pasquantino and I think that Vinnie was being my up um, in a year with,
2: when I was yeah. when I was single those couple of years in New York, that was my hinge profile. Was fun and sort of cheeky. Fun and sort of cheeky. Not yes. good. Not good.
0: <laughs> fun and sort of and, cheeky. And it and it led you back to your high school girlfriend, so you can see how that worked out for Kansas City. Yeah. Wow, that is an
2: <laughs> oversimplification of my relationship journey, but thank you, Jordan Schusterman.
0: You you br- you brought us there unexpectedly, so I had to bring us back. Uh, Kansas City is horrible. They have and Vinny Pasquantino uh, being out for the year with labrum surgery. They're only good hitter. Basically, I mean, Sal Perez has been honestly awesome, and I love Sal Perez. But from your bird's eye view as a national reporter who probably isn't watching them every day, I mean, this is, this is shocking. And, and when you look at the kind of also organizationally, the way where Dayton Moore moves out, but Picola who's been there the whole time, just steps right in, that was already mildly concerning <laughs> when you consider, to your point, sometimes change is what you need. And it's just change, change, shit. I don't care what it is, just get something new. This is a dark, they're in a dark place. And Royals fans, I feel bad for them because rebuilds shouldn't take this long because we've seen other teams you can get out of this if you are good at team building and you're good at player development, even if you're not spending that much money. Doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon for Kansas City. Uh, what have been your takeaways from the Royals?
1: Yeah, I have not watched them a ton, but I have kind of paid attention. Um, you know, the Andy McCullough factor of him tweeting about the Royals every few weeks, I or, you know, some Royals, great. I go back and see how they're doing. Uh But yeah, it's, it's interesting because one of the things that was really clear to me for years with them is that they were just whiffing on pitching prospects. Like, I don't know if they were whiffing on draft or development. So when you, you know, they, they, like you said, they've got some, some hitters, they've shown that they can kind of, I guess Bobby Witt Jr. was a no brainer, but they didn't mess him up. Um, But you know, what's happened on that side for them. And and then to your point, if you keep the kind of same regime in place, like, is it going to change? And they're not a team that has like all this money to throw into R&D and build pitching labs at every minor league facility. Like they've got to figure this out, you know, on a budget and with people who have not proven they can't. So it's, it's rough and it's bleak and they definitely deserve better. And I know they're trying to get a stadium. And it's just kind of, it's just that familiar situation of like, how are you going to get out of this? Um, And I think the answer is they've got to figure out how to develop pitching. And uh, there are a lot of other teams that can
2: say that too. The concerning thing for Royals and Royals fans, right, is from 1996 to 2013, this team did not finish above third place in the division. Again, 96 to 2013, that's almost 20 years. They were in that spiral of, it's like when we were growing up, perpetually bad. They were always bad. There was never like, a refresh. There was never a rebuild that seemed like it was going to work. It was just this static sludge of just disgusting baseball, and it does seem like they are being pulled back into that because this current core—the Bobby Witts and the and the Vinnies—like it's not going to be enough. There, it, that is what has been so dispiriting about this season, is that there was hope, and not only is this season not gone well. It has shown that this group is unlikely to be the group that brings them back to where they need to go. And we see that all the time with various, you know, rebuilds when it becomes clear that, like, I'm trying to, like, the rebuild before the Cubs got good, where it was like Josh Vitters, right? It was like, oh, he's going to save us. Like, he's going to, and then you come to this realization that that's not the case, right? And it's so disheartening because you've spent all this time as a fan believing in these prospects and looking at high a box scores and you know and then the guys suck or they don't suck but they're just not enough. And I think you're like I don't want to put too much pressure or um blame on Vinny and Bobby Witt and Melendez like it's the pitching. You're right. Like the fact that they haven't been able to develop pitching internally Despite drafting, like, what was it, Jordan? Like, 85 college arms in 2018 And even two
0: years ago, even two years ago, like, when those guys were first getting to the big leagues, it looked like an accomplishment. It looked like, oh, my God. Like, they actually... This has paid off because sometimes not all those guys get to the big leagues. But now, (laughs) and this is why this is so dire, you look at where their system is, and it's terrible. And they do have a very strong pitching staff in A-ball with some guys they've recently drafted. Congratulations. But like, is not th- raise raise yeah. the banner. Raise the banner. Exactly. Strong wrong <laughs> pitching like, staff in A-ball. A ball. Ace Lacey hasn't thrown a pitch this season. Like he was a top 5 pick in 20- like the and and Bobby Wood Jr. who I'm not going to quit him because he still could go 30-30 this year, which is so funny. Like I mean like he he went 20-30 last year, it was like the worst 20-30 season of all time. But like I'm not Bobby Wood Jr. I'm not burying. It's frustrating Bobby that he's Wood Jr., not better. Bobby Wood yeah. Jr. is like late
2: career Russell Westbrook level of of athlete. <laughs> yeah, but he's 23. He's I know. 23. I know. So it's, <laughs> it's like incredibly watchable except we all know that he's not good right now. Right? Like we <laughs> accept both of those facts to be true.
0: So, but to Chelsea's point, like the pitching is just like the fact that Brady Singer has been downright horrific this year is both disappointing and surprising. Like I sure, like I if you had told me that Lynch and, you know, I guess I mean, Bubish was looking good before he got hurt, but some of these other guys, if you told me they weren't working out, okay. But that's the one where where I just don't know. And and then the saddest part is it's like their best trade chip is a role Chapman. And I, I mean, I guess they could say it's Sal Perez, and I just don't think they're going to do that, but maybe, I'll, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but it sucks. It sucks. It sucks for them. And, and I've, I've said this a lot, but just watching these four rebuilds in the central, Pirates, Reds, Royals, Tigers, and how bad it's going for the Royals and Tigers, and how... Well, relatively, it's going for the Reds and Pirates is 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 pretty stunning to watch, um, and uh, and yeah, but hey, Spencer Torkelson, maybe maybe it's happening, maybe it's happening. All right, we're not talking about the Tigers. Uh, all right, let us spend two to four minutes saying holy shit about Shohei Otani. I would say that this is not something we do nearly enough on this podcast, but also like. You know, it's not like you need to convince us. Uh, he's he's the best player in the world. He's the best baseball player I've ever seen. What he did this week, hitting four opposite field home runs, three of them were 440 feet or farther, the farthest balls hit to the left field in ballpark history, all three of them by him, including in a game where he was pitching. I, I mean, I, you know, we're out of words. He's the best player I've ever seen. Uh, Chelsea, uh, what do you think? What do you think about this guy? He's pretty good, right?
1: I mean, those home runs, you guys were tweeting them over and over. So I've like watched them a bunch. And I mean, they're just absurd. Like there's, there's not people that can do that. The the only thing I've seen that's like comparable to that kind of like opposite field alley power is like Juan Soto at his absolute best. And, and that was something like no one had seen before in the nationals organization. You know, it's just like, it doesn't happen like, and he, Otani's unbelievable. I mean, even like WBC batting practice sessions where he was just purposely putting balls in the top deck in Miami. Like, people don't do that. People can't do that accidentally. Uh, so, yeah, he's amazing. And and actually, last night was the first time I let myself be like, is this going to happen? Like, are the Angels good enough? Mm, uh, I don't,
0: interesting. I, I
1: don't, I don't know, but the vibes are better this time of the year than they usually are there. So, I don't know.
0: <laughs> last night was the first time that I thought, Oh, he actually can singularly carry them, yes. which I know that sounds right. dumb, but like because he has done this for the last few years, but like this, this stretch, this one he just did in Texas this week, it actually felt like a one man team. Like, as we've yeah. mentioned a couple times, Mike Trout has been actively bad for like a month. And I know that they have built this roster up to be a, a much more competent team. And I do think they are going to be in the mix for a wild card no matter what, but like. <laughs> I'm with you it's like holy shit he can just win these games on his own and and to be able to hit these home runs I mean this is what I tweeted but it's just like if he never pitched he would be one of the most astonishing position players that we have in the game Um, and he pitches so pretty fucking cool (laughs) it's
2: amazing yeah
0: he's he's good guys well can I can I say one more thing about Otani and this hot streak in particular he also in May was kind of going through it Like he had a little run in May where he was striking out a shit ton Um, and like at the end of April. And then now it's like, I mean, he's got like a 1400 OPS in June or some fucking ridiculous nonsense. (laughs) So, so, uh, yeah. Anyway, it's just it's just funny because we really have not talked about it much on this podcast (laughs) this week
2: demanded it. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. Two points here. One is like, okay, why do we not talk about him maybe enough on this podcast? I think it's because there is a lazy level of analysis that happens around the baseball media world where it just like Otani go is is the totality of what people say. And so it is sometimes difficult to add anything more than that because of how Mm. obvious his excellence is on a day to day basis. And I don't want that to like make us numb to him or, you know not appreciate him enough but I sometimes find it difficult to talk about Otani in that way because it's like what do you just like I don't need no one is listening to this podcast to be like I wonder if Otani's good like any person can watch him and understand like 80% of Shohei Otani being incredible without anyone providing any level of analysis
0: totally totally agree but again, that that is why I did want to harp on that. At least when he did it the first time, and then three more times over the course of the week, that specific home run, I just can't. He did it three times in one week. I I cannot. It just does not look normal at all. Well, I, I is so ridiculous to see opposite field power like that.
2: Because we have under like we have a conception in our heads of what an opposite field home run looks like, where a batter swings with a certain amount of force and then the math of how far the ball should go and to where is in our heads. And for Soto, as you mentioned before, when he does it, he is swinging so hard and the transfer of power is so visually apparent that like when he hits an opposite field home run, you're like, oh my God, that's going to go far. Otani, it's
0: just like, (laughs) Ying, <laughs> like third But like it look the trajectory looks like he's pulling the ball that shouldn't be possible like that and it's the same thing with Soto like when you watch the Soto home run of the train tracks in the World Series like it that should not be possible to do opposite field and Otani did it three times in, in the same week uh, while pitching. Last thing um, on anyway. the Angels, really quickly, yeah.
2: I want to have a longer conversation about them next week, Jordan, because I do think they're interesting and I do think that this is. A different year for the Angels. Yes, they are in a place they've been before, but the fact that they have built a higher floor for this roster that has allowed for Trout to be bad and for them still to be here is notable, I think. I want to get to it next week. The last thing I will say about them. In order, the top four players by wins above replacement for the Anaheim Angels. Shohei Otani, 4.6. This is B B-ref. Mike Trout, 2. Zach Neto, 1.9. Mickey Moniak, 1.5. Go Angels.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and Chris Davinsky, by the way, at number six. So there, there's, there's still problems here, okay? This is, there's not. To your point, Chelsea, you know, it's easy to get tricked. It's happened to most of us. But uh, let's, let's be patient. Let's just enjoy the show. Uh, no W. All right. It's time for the good, the bad, the ugla. We can speed through these, but I'm so excited about this. Because Chelsea is especially equipped to participate, as you will find out here shortly. Uh, So, Chelsea, thank you for indulging us. As always, we do on Friday. Something good, something bad, something ugly from the past week or perhaps from 2015. Uh, Let us go to you, Jake. Uh, Start us off with something good.
2: I want to talk about Kevin Kiermaier as my good. He has not been particularly good recently. He's kind of coming back to earth a little bit offensively but he is enjoying the single best season of his career as an age 33 injury riddled center fielder who was just booted from the only team he'd ever known and he's been incredible kiermaier has never been an all-star which is indicative of how we think about value and defense. And Geraldton Simmons was never an all-star. The elite defensive players, because they don't have like incredible defensive seasons that are obvious to our eyes, don't get the opportunity to be all-stars. And I think Kiermaier is going to get that chance this year because of how good he's been offensively. And for me, that is good. He is a really iconic player. He is someone that I will like tell my children about and have them watch highlights of him He is as good of a defensive center fielder. He is the Andrew Jones of like our generation of following ball, like the last decade. He is that guy. He does not, like he was not on a famous team necessarily, or he was not as good offensively and he did not have big postseason moments like Andrew Jones or whatever. But Kiermaier is the best defensive center fielder of our generation. I'm happy he's finally getting some of his flowers. I wrote a thing over at Fox Sports this past week where I asked Kiermaier for his three pillars, like his three commandments of how he plays center field defense. And it was really interesting to hear him talk. Like he was like the first thing I am ready. Every pitch, the level of intensity with which he speaks about center field defense was really enlightening to me. He was like, anytime there's a, a pitch from a pitcher, I assume I'm like robbing a home run. You know what I mean? And that psycho behavior is part of why he's so good. So for me, Kevin Kiermaier is good. I will kick it to you, Chelsea. What was good? you this week
1: i'm gonna be a homer here um and just bring up something no one cares about outside of dc which is i think Mackenzie gore might be the real deal um okay five five plus innings against the i mean the astros are are weaker than normal but he just kind of keeps putting up numbers his his you know his whiff percentages and stuff are like they're not top but they're close enough that you kind of have to give it a second look and be like is this real and one of the things that's kind of hard to to see from afar that I've gotten to see more up close is like that guy's a, a dude, as you would say. Like he's got the the factor of like he's mad if he's not good. He thinks he should be good all the time. You know, a lot of young pitchers have come up during my time in in D.C. and some of them have been really really good. But he is the one who I would look at first, and I see like that fire that you only kind of seem to see in the really good ones. And uh, it's been interesting to watch. But I think it's been really encouraging for the Nats. Like to your point of the Royals. Not getting to see the kind of progress they were hoping for, I think the Nats are looking at Gore and just being like, "Stay where you are, dude. Like, keep going. Let's let's keep going because you're this is where you're supposed to be." Um, so quietly, I think he's sort of becoming what they
2: are hoping. The Nats are saying to their pitching dev people, "Don't talk to him. Don't say anything <laughs> yeah, <just> to him.
1: <laughs> just leave him alone." We don't know why this is happening. Just figure. Just let him go.
0: <laughs> and uh, JoJo Gray has also been pretty pretty yeah, freaking solid. Awesome. So both of them. But but awesome. I'm glad you I'm glad you mentioned Gore. Um, I think it got kind of lost because he had some like disaster outings and then got hurt. He had a one five ERA through his first nine major league starts last year, before the trade. Like he, it was happening. It was like holy shit! Like this is the guy. This is the dude who was one of the more celebrated you know amateur pitching prospects we've ever seen. So great shout out. He is uh, he's a fun watch too. As far as left handed pitchers, it's nice you know if you have to watch Patrick Corbin, at least you're going to get to also watch. Uh, mackenzie gore <laughs> in, yes. the, in the stretch there uh my good is matt McLean. matt McLean is so good at baseball guys i am such a big fan i've gotten to watch him now since he came up uh, with the reds and while ellie de cruz does deserve all the attention and more matt McLean is just ridiculous and also fascinating because he has been a very celebrated and people thought he was going to be a great a great hitter since he was 17 you know he he He's a first-round pick out of high school, doesn't sign, goes to UCLA, and like has a good career there, but it wasn't like he totally blew everyone away. And since he got into pro ball, he just added a shocking amount of power for a dude who's listed at 5'8", and might be 5'7", uh, having been around him. Um, and just, I mean, just a very easy stat. Since he was called up on May 15th, he's second in baseball and hits. Not supposed to be that easy. And it's interesting because he's right behind Freddie Freeman and Bo Bichette. And Bo Bichette is like kind of a interesting comp there. I mean, he's not quite as big, and I don't think he has nearly as much raw power, but it's more than I thought. And he's a great defender, great base runner. And uh that's that is a foundational piece for Cincinnati. He is he is the real deal. I'm a huge fan of Matt McClain. So there you go. He is good. Chelsea, let's send it back to you actually, uh, for for some bad.
1: My bad is is more like perplexing and I think it is the, the Buck show Walter approach to the Mets recent struggle. Um, this,
0: this. this is you know, kind, of
1: my, kind
2: of my this is kind of my ugla, but we will get it. Okay. <laughs> oh oh shoot. Okay, Sorry. No, no, go Whoa, no, no, I'll no, no, no.
1: Quick. My assumption with show Walter is that he is always talking to the media with a strategy. That guy is always trying to deflect from players or whatever. But he's been kinda of angry this week. Like he's been like, No, I'm like we have, you know, nothing to be ashamed of or whatever he said after that game and just kind of being short and it's it's not what you expect from someone with that kind of experience who knows New York who who like should be able to kind of handle something like this and I'm, I'm a little confused I, I don't know if we're seeing him unravel or if he's got something in mind that he thinks this is the right way to handle it and take pressure off the players but I had thought for sure the Mets would be okay uh and watching his demeanor change a little bit and hearing people who've talked to him recently say he's just very on edge even more than usual is is i think a bad sign for me because he should know when things are going to be okay and when they're not and he's not projecting buck Showalter confidence right now i would say
2: i think friend of the program annie mccullough said this at some point recently where it was like buck Showalter is doing the whole five-year buck Walter cycle in two years
1: great point great point yeah <laughs> like he's just yeah.
2: accelerating the whole thing where we're already at the totally end of it, right yeah but they didn't get to yeah. win in the middle is kind of totally
1: and and i've always wondered like you know i've enjoyed dealing with him and looking back you you know he's got that reputation like he leaves teams win and i was like how does that why does that happen and i have seen it on their accelerated scale like oh now i see like i get it you know and i like him a lot but it's been interesting to
0: watch that is that is a gr- that is a good bad thank you chelsea for that uh jake what you got louisa rise is oh for his last 12 everybody Oh, 12. it's a 12. It's so funny. You know how many players go 0 for 12? <laughs>
2: not this one. <laughs> I know. It's so good. In a three-game oh, set in a three-game set against the Mariners, he went 0 for 12. He is oh, one. look at. Yeah, there you go, 12. Jordan. He's one they, for his last 17 dating back to the last game of the White Sox series. Again, this is a very normal thing for most baseball players, but not for the one who is trying to hit 400 his average is all the way down to a microscopic 378 which would be like the highest average in the last 10 years right. but is disappointing but it is a great reminder of how cruel the math is and why hitting even 350 is impossible because if you go over 4 like you're fucked like you're just fu- you're just fucked right and Luis Ramirez going 1 for 17 has like he has to get hot for three weeks to get back to yeah. four hundred, right?
0: And I don't, I don't like, I don't mean it from the party pooper standpoint because I love. He's one of my favorite players, and I wrote about him last year when he was hitting three sixty. But like, this is why the four hundred conversations are just absurd. Because it takes three bad games and you're screwed. Like, it's like, and I know he can go on a hot streak and hopefully gets it back. But Mariners raised the banner, kept a rise hitless for a series. I mean, let's go. This is huge. This is season's been a smashing success. What's bad you know? for you, Jordan? <laughs> uh, the Milwaukee Brewers have lost six in a row. And while this division, they are injured. I, I acknowledge that they are injured. But a couple weeks ago, the Reds were in striking distance coming into a four-game series at home against the Brewers, and the Brewers were like, no, it's fine. We're going to win. They won three or four, and it was like, all right, sorry, Reds. That was cute. And since then, the Reds have been on fire, and the Brewers are a disaster. Of course, they get swept at home by Oakland. They lose two close games, including the first Devin Williams meltdown of the year, maybe the last Devin Williams meltdown of the year against Minnesota, where I believe he did not record an out on Tuesday And this team is just as as painfully mid as it gets. And we talk about the Twins, and it's like, please just win this stupid division. Like that's how I feel about Milwaukee. But it's more fun if Pittsburgh and Cincinnati are going to stick around. Like I I think that's that's way more interesting. So it's kind of good for the nature of how interesting the season is. But as far as Milwaukee's expectations, like it's bad. It's very bad. So they are bad. All right, Ugla, Ugla time. Uh, I think Jake, you should go first.
2: So my Ugglo was Buck Walter related. There was a video that Yes Network tweeted out during the Subway series. Did you see this? Of Buck Showalter <laughs> and a bunch of Yankees. And, and it, the, the title was basically like, what do these New Yorkers think about pizza? And they talked about pizza, but then it kind of s- just slowly fell into a conversation about New York as a whole. And they're like, you know, these clips, like they're very short. And there's like Oswaldo Cabrera is on there being very charismatic and. You know, Kyle Gashioka has a bad answer and, you know, but the Buck Showalter part of it was so incredible. He's there are three different things that he says in there. The first is in response to pizza uh, and his favorite pizza place in New York. And he said, my wife cooks was his response to his favorite pizza. place. My wife cooks. This is an outrageous statement for a variety of reasons. Number one, your wife does not have a brick oven in your home in which she can make delicious <laughs> neapolitan style pizza that i've refused to believe that maybe you do in your backyard of your big house wherever you live in the suburbs but there's no way that your favorite pizza is my wife cooks that's number 1 number 2 your wife doesn't cook because where do you eat every night buck at the yard you are that's an acceptable answer an acceptable answer to this question for buck who did not want to answer the question was i don't live in new york city probably I eat at the yard. I haven't gotten the opportunity to eat at a pizza place, which is totally legitimate. And a great reminder that a lot of the players who play for the teams in these cities don't really live in the cities and are not necessarily connected to these cities as places because of how their lives work, because of how much time they spend on the road and where they live in the offseason and like their weird schedules. I just think, you know, like Jake Bowers is not like experiencing New York City. You know what I mean? Like he's probably living in New Jersey somewhere. That was the buck shoulders first answer. the second one was what he likes most about New York where he said, I don't know. I live here.
0: (laughs) He basically. So what do you think that means? Translate that for us, Jake. I think what he is trying to say
2: is I love it here. I mean, I live here, don't I? But the way it came across was like, (laughs) I live here. Like, I make New York great.
0: <laughs> oh, I thought I was I was interpreting it as like, I don't have a choice. I live here. I manage the mess. <laughs> I don't. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. This is where I am stuck. And
2: then his last his underperforming the, team. The last thing that struck me was when he talked about what he likes about New York. He was like, they're great at driving here. Like New Yorkers know how to merge. Which is just a hilarious compliment. Like, no New York. Like, we don't drive. Like, no one drives. It's like the least percentage of car owners in America. And Buck Walter's like, I love the way they drive in this town.
0: Just bizarre. And and to Chelsea's point earlier, like, he's just in a weird place right now. His head is in a, he's in, he's in a weird spot. I mean, because normally, to your point, it's like we're speed the Buck Showalter experience. Like, his pressers. He is delivering not just words of wisdom, but like he'll he's cracking jokes. He's making he's making people laugh like he's doing things. And in this assignment, he just wasn't he was not ready to give competent answers. So,
2: Chelsea, next time you're in town in New York, you and I, let's go grab dinner at my wife cooks. I hear it's it's pretty good. (laughs) See Buck's
1: wife will make us dinner, <laughs>
0: yeah that place is, is just exquisite um all right what's their uh what's their food safety rating are they is it an a or is it a b <laughs> I hope it's a c <laughs> that's <how laughs> you know do you remember the time
2: good. remember the time my uncle took us to the c rated restaurant
0: on purpose I do yeah it was delicious and uh questionable experience afterwards all right anyway uh Chelsea Janes before we get to your ugla, my ugla is also nationals related. It is something I have started tracking over the last couple of weeks, which is that the Nationals until last night had not played an extra inning game, Chelsea. And I alerted this to our good friend, Sarah Langs. And I said, hey, this seems weird. What the hell? And because I only know how to do some levels of stat head searches and not Sarah Langs levels of (laughs) research, I asked her how notable this was. And she tweeted out last night, which is it was the fourth most games into a season a team has played its first extra inning game. The record is the 2005 Red Sox, who went 99 games before playing an extra inning game. Absolutely Wait, I'm sensational. Sorry.
2: That's an amazing answer, because the 2004 Red Sox were just an extra inning game. And then the year after, <laughs> right.
0: they were like, no. We can't do this. We can't do this. So, uh, yes, 05 Red Sox, 99. 02 White Sox, 70. 03 uh, 23 Rockies. So this year, the Rockies had done it, too, and then they had played two back-to-back extra inning games earlier this week, which is just bizarre. But what I want to say is while the dream is dead to break the Red Sox record, I, do wanted to, I did want to share with the limited research that I did the record for the fewest extra inning games played in a 162-game season. Do either of you have a guess for the number? Obviously, there's no way for you to guess the team. But Chelsea, what do you think the fewest, from what I can tell, the fewest extra innings games played? It is recent and um, how many those games are. Six,
1: think? six, and I have no idea who.
0: No there's, no, there's no way you would know how. What's your guess, Jake? <laughs> I'll say four, mm-hmm.
2: and I will say the <laughs> 2017 <laughs> Marlins. Oh.
0: 2016 Angels, Dude. and it is indeed four, uh, which is uh, wow. very nicely done. So that is a record that maybe the Nationals <laughs> – can still can still take, and if you saw how those games ended the last two nights where the first game, it looked like it was heading to extras, and then Hunter Harvey completely blew it, and then last night it looked like the Nationals were going to win, and then Hunter Harvey blew it, <laughs> and they did go to extras. So, it was a, a very funny week tracking this very irrelevant statistic. Chelsea, we sent it to you for some literal ugla. Uh, why don't you tell us I'm very excited where this is going, so please uh what do you got for Ugla this week?
1: So Dan Ugla is one of the more formative baseball players in my baseball reporting career because i started in 2015 with the washington nationals i think he was a non-roster invitee uh he never wore a shirt um and so that was you know just something to get used to but uh on my the Nats were like really bad early that year they were supposed to be great they had like all the rotation of you know, the greatest rotation ever, whatever. Um, And it got to April and things were going badly. They started like AJ Cole. They fell behind by like nine or 10 runs. He was supposed to be the next big thing, clearly, like just kind of wet the bed that day. And that night, the Nats came back from, yeah, it was like the biggest deficit they'd ever had. It was the most miraculous game. It was the first game I was like on the road by myself and I had to write it. So I was like freaking out. And Dan Ugla like hit the biggest home run of the year to that date. And like a memorable one that people still talk about. And he did nothing else as in that, but he hit that home run. And when I got back to the clubhouse, he was just there shirtless, covered in chocolate sauce, and was covering everyone else in chocolate sauce. And I like no one asked him why. He just said I wanted to like use chocolate sauce. It's what we had to celebrate. So and the kind of like punchline is the night before that, I was really, really sick. Uh, I was like on the floor in the bathroom. I was like in bad shape, somehow got myself to the stadium. Uh, and my night ended with Dan Ugla covered in chocolate sauce, like spraying it on everyone. And it was just like a real, a real day in the life. Um, my other Dan Ugla story is that he went through this crazy training for his eyes that involved like jumping on a trampoline, like his eyes weren't synced up with his brain. It was this crazy thing. It didn't actually help him revive his career, but uh, so I have this lasting image that I've never actually seen, but pictured of Dan Ugla jumping on a trampoline with his eyes closed, trying to catch things he can't see and you know save his career that way. So those are my, those are my two Dan Ugla stories, but man, he's a trip, such a nice dude, very friendly and very
0: shirtless. Unbelievable. That is an incredible story. The chocolate sauce story is so good because normally like when say like somebody makes their major league debut and they do all kinds of weird stuff with them in the shower, like normally they're cleaned up by the time the media gets into the clubhouse. Like normally they try to make it look sort of normal by the time you get in there, but that was not the case in Atlanta on April 28th, 2015.
1: Nice. Nice. Yeah. I think Max Scherzer like found chocolate sauce, started spraying in Dan Uggle was like, Wipe it on me, and it's just bring like, all right, here we on. are. This, Major League Baseball.
0: This this, uh, this box score is just outstanding. Jake and I are both looking at it here. Five hit day from Denard Span atop the order. Yeah. Very uh, <laughs> impressive stuff. Um, but yes, Dan Ugla with a with a massive home run late off of Jason Grilly to give the uh, to give the Nationals the lead in the top of the ninth in atlanta before drew Storen came in and closed things out Ooh. that is an incredible story chelsea uh a be- the best ugly we've ever had we will never be able to wow. talk that so <laughs> thank, you. thank you yeah no we you know i've I've, I've, t- I've thought about like at some point we should probably do something dan ugly related but instead we just had to wait for you to bring us uh the story of chocolate sauce but one yeah. of our fa- all-time favorites and i'm it's good to know that he is um also delightfully weird and a very nice uh, lad. So hope Dan Uggles doing well wherever he's at, wherever he's at. Uh,
2: <laughs> that's the show.
0: That's it. I don't really have anything else to say. Jordan and I are here
2: in Omaha. We'll be tweeting and posting about the Collegiate World Series. Jordan, you're raising your hand. I'm going to call on you. Yes.
0: I just want to say, you know, this our crazy schedule this time of year does not necessarily lend itself to like the best version of this podcast. I think we delivered. A great barbacast here this morning. Thanks 99% to Chelsea Janes for making that possible. Because I think if it was just us, we would have just been blabbering and saying things we probably shouldn't about the commissioner's press conference. Um, but it's so funny, Thank Ray, you for, Jordan, for guiding us. Like,
2: we, we get paid to do a podcast. And we do a podcast. And we spend a lot of time thinking about Major League Baseball. But maybe we should be doing that every day. Right? But sometimes the way that our life works is we can't do that every like we are sometimes doing college baseball or literally like whatever. And so what we still have to come on here every, all the time and talk to (laughs) these people and pretend like we're authorities on the matter and enough people listen that we get to keep doing it. But to the listeners, just so you know, we're peeling the curtain back. Chelsea saved our asses here. So thank you, Chelsea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Chelsea, we hope you enjoyed it. And where can, where can people uh, support your work and, and follow you? I know you're, I mean, you're, you're one of the best.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, if you if you're so inclined, WashingtonPost.com, dot com. Obviously, I think I'm Chelsea underscore Jans on Twitter. I don't know if I recommend that follow, but it's there. And uh, yeah,
0: yeah. I, democracy I, I disagree. I think or... Chelsea's I, democracy, democracy does. Just, it does. And I I gotta say, I think Chelsea's got one of the better Twitter. Like you tweet the right amount, and that's you know wow. it helps to not be a big writer anymore. But like your your tweets hit. Your tweets hit. It's good. I'm in. I'm in. Thank uh, you, Chelsea James. Wow. Thank you. I, I mean that. That's really. Jordan yeah. and I often talk about the list
2: of people who might like baseball more than us. This is not a definitive list of people who do like baseball more than us. It is a conversation about people who are in the conversation. Rob Manfred. Rob Manfred is yeah, there. Yeah, he loves yeah. He's actually here in Omaha on his own dime for fun. <laughs> um, and Chelsea is. No doubt on that list. And I would see the number of people on that list that are around the game all the time is very small because it grinds you down and it makes you hate it. And so that is why I am particularly thankful for you, Chelsea, as one, a friend, two, a colleague, and three, a voice in our game that you are have been able to maintain the level of enthusiasm that you have and the level of perspective that you bring. I think a big reason for that is that you covered politics for a couple of years. And so you're very appreciative <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. of the world of
1: baseball. Yeah. 100%. I would say MLB during Pride Month, it might, might batter that out of me, but I'm trying to hold mm. on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. Just a couple more weeks. Surely there won't be another embarrassing uh, mishap over the course of the next few weeks. But hopefully not. Uh, thank you, Chelsea, again for the insight. And uh and and playing along with our we 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 had some good conversations and then we got today an ugly and chocolate sauce. That is this podcast. Thank you to Chelsea, thank you to Jake, thank you to Chris Tyler for producing as always. Uh we hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll be back back on Monday. Bye.